Acts chapter 2, um, verses 29 through 36. Please, uh, please stand with us as we read God's word together. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. Fathers, we uh, come to your word today. We are thankful for the fact that it is true. We're thankful for the fact that the flowers fade and the grass withers. But Lord, your word abides forever. It is imperishable. It never loses its power, its truthfulness, or the fact that it is uh, very from you, the very voice of God, the truth of God revealed to us. And we, as your people today, as we uh, gather around it, we pray that you would help us to understand it, not just understand it, but Lord, that we would believe it, receive it in faith, and obey it, and that it would bring up more joy and more obedience and more life in our hearts because of it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As we uh, finish today, we actually finish Peter's sermon, which is the first sermon, as we said, that happens in the history of the church. This is the first sermon, the first Christian sermon that is preached on the day of Pentecost as Peter tries to tell this crowd who is seeing this miraculous event, he's trying to explain to them why it's important and what it means. And so the main point that Peter has had through this entire thing is that the time of the Messiah has come. That these Jewish, these devout Jews that he is speaking with uh, don't need to be looking ahead any longer to a Messiah, but they instead have the Messiah arrived in Jesus. And so that's the, the thing that Peter is driving home. He drives it home through um, many different um, quotes of the Old Testament and explaining to them how they have come true. But today what I want us to talk about in this last section can really be summed up And one uh, simple verse, and it is verse 36, that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So today we're going to talk about what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is both Christ and Lord, what those titles mean and why they are important. Now the sentence, Christ is Lord, might be really familiar to you, I hope, I hope if you've been around church for a long time, I really hope that the sentence, Christ is Lord, is very familiar to you. If it's not, then you should worry a little bit about where you've been going. Um, The sentence, Christ is Lord, is in many ways kind of the bare bones of the Christian belief. Like what we say as Christians is that Jesus Christ is in fact the Lord of all things. And that might be familiar to us, but I pray that as we go through this today, um, that wouldn't just be a sentence that we know a sentence that we kind of understand like cognitively in our brains, but it would be a sentence that actually means something a lot more 
for us today. And so today we're going to talk about a few things. The first is that Jesus is David's son. Jesus is the son of David, the promised son of David. The second thing is that this Christ's kingdom has begun. And then the last thing is four things that you and I personally need to do with the fact that Christ is Lord. That's where we're headed today. Four things that you and I must do because of the fact that Christ is Lord. So the first uh, section of this is Peter explaining to them that Jesus is in fact the promised son of David. I'll read these verses for us again, 29 to 32. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. We'll pause there for just a moment. I want us to kind of trace Peter's argument, like understand the point that he's making, and then we'll comment on it for a second. So what Peter is saying is that David made all these prophecies, and yet David, King David, was still dead. Right? He's like, David said that, that the Holy One wouldn't see corruption. If you read Psalm 16, which we talked about last week, it uses all these first-person I pronouns, right? David is speaking in the first person that whole time. But Peter proved to them last week, um, in the verses ahead of this, that that was speaking of Christ, not about David. Because if David said all these things, and yet David's grave was still there in Jerusalem, all these guys could have just walked a short walk to go see it, then either God's promises were actually untrue to David, or they were never speaking about David in the first place. And so Peter's point is that these things were speaking about David's son, who was to be the Messiah. The Messiah would be the one who wouldn't see corruption. He would be the Holy One that was spoken of. So it wasn't that David set his hopes too high. It wasn't that he like, got carried away and made all these promises, that he made up promises that God had made to him, right? He had claimed all these things that weren't true. It wasn't anything like that. Instead, David was speaking. He was looking ahead through the Holy Spirit who was teaching him, and he was looking ahead to the Messiah who was to come. See, he had received a promise from God, and he had, he had believed it. Um, these two uh, scriptures I want you to write down. Maybe you can read these chapters uh, later on this week. This is where the promises are given to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then Psalm 132. 2 Samuel chapter 7 reads this. This is the prophet Nathan speaking to King David. He says, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then Psalm 132, it says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath, a sure promise, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So David received these promises from God. He believed them. He didn't, act, he didn't, he didn't uh, doubt them, but instead he believed them. And this greatest king of Israel, right? King David was by far the greatest king Israel ever had. Right? Solomon was the richest king. Solomon ruled over perhaps the most glorious of the kingdoms, but David was the greatest king, and yet the greatest king is promised to have an even greater son, one that would reign forever and ever. We, read, we hear that promise where it says, I will establish his throne. I think we do something really uh, funny as Christians on this side of uh, all these things being fulfilled. Right? We 
we look at the Jewish people and we often think like, how did they not get it that that throne was going to be, um, it was going to start off like spiritually? Right, you and I, we hear that promise and we know the truth that that throne that was going to be established was a spiritual throne and, and somehow in our brains a spiritual throne is less important and powerful than a physical throne. Like we, we sort of treat Christ's rule like that. I don't think we mean to. I don't think we, I don't think we verbalize it that way. But I think the, the fact that it's spiritual and not physical, somehow we take his kingship as though it's weaker than all the ones that we can see with our eyes. But just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's weak. Amen? Just because Christ's reign is spiritual does not mean that it is weak. And we as his people should be the first ones to believe that. And David sees the truths of these promises and he knows that God uh, is not a man that he would lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind like the book of Numbers says. And so he believes them. He believes them and he foresees this great reality to come, even the reality of resurrection, so that when, uh, that when David would lay down with his fathers, the Messiah would in fact lay down, but he would rise back up. That's what Peter says David foresaw in the future. But because David knew that the promises of God were true, and he knew what it meant to live based on those promises of God. For you and I, I think we often think about living, as a, living on the promises of God. We often act like that means we just have like coffee cups with the promises of God written out on them, right? We have coffee cups and notebooks and journals and wall art that has our favorite psalm on it. And we're like, yes, we have, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil. And we think that's what it means to live on the promises of God. But what David understood, and what I hope we understand, is that living, in the prom- living and believing the promises of God really means more than just these fun uh, reminders that we have, but it means that ultimately we have a greater joy and a greater obedience to God. When we really believe the promises of God, when we really believe how great they are, when we really see the goodness of them, it doesn't just show up in how, how much we enjoy Christian things and how much we enjoy Christian art and, and our favorite Bible verse and things like that. It shows up in a greater joy and a greater faithfulness taking shape in our lives because we actually live like his promises are true. We don't just say, oh yeah, God, I believe those promises are true. We actually live like they're true. So this son of David, God raised up, and this son is Jesus of Nazareth. This resurrection alone proves the reality that he is the Messiah, as Peter points out. So that when, P- when David was describing the resurrection, he was actually describing the Messiah. When he talks about the Holy One's not going to see corruption, when he says that he won't be abandoned to Sheol or to Hades, he's actually describing the Messiah before the Messiah had even arrived. And so Peter is telling them all the promises have come true. All the promises of God are, in fact, yes and amen in Jesus. And I want us to think for a minute just how crazy it would be if you were one of the, devout, the, the people he's speaking to, it says are devout Jews, meaning these are Jewish people that really do believe, they really do follow um, Yahweh, they really do follow the commandments, like they care about it. They're not just um, ethnically Jewish, they are like, if you want to call it, spiritually Jewish. Like they actually follow it. And they hadn't heard from any prophet of God for 400 years. So for 400 years, they hadn't even received a new promise from God, much less the fulfillment of much of anything. And then all of a sudden, a man who's a fisherman 
from Galilee stands up and says, it's all come true. That'd be a radical thing for them to hear. It'd be a radical thing for us to hear. But it's true that all these promises are true in Christ. And it's true for you today that all the promises, all the commands of God, all the promises of God are true. They are yes and amen, verified true because of Christ. And so as you deal with uh, suffering in your life, as you deal with death in your life, even as you uh, deal, you can look ahead and you can see um, that time coming for, fam- for, for family members in your life. I want you to know the promises are yes and amen. They are true. When you look and you, uh, you receive mistreatment at work in your family, from your friends, when you are abused in that way, misused and mistreated or maligned in that way, hold on to the promises. They are true. When you decide, because you read God's Word and you decide to really base your life on His Word, to base your family on His Word, your household, your, your job, your work, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, when you decide to do all those things because of the promises of God, that His Word is greater, that His design is greater, that His good things are greater, and yet the person next to you doesn't do that, and they receive a bunch of great things, and they get promotions before you, and they get, um, they get a wife, or they get a husband, they get kids before you, they get the things that you wanted before you do. Believe that the promises are true. Because this Messiah came to fulfill all those promises and to prove the faithfulness of God, but also this Messiah's kingdom began. Look at verse uh, 32, we'll pick it up there. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, the Holy Spirit. Uh, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter shows them that not only did the Messiah come, but that this kingdom of the Messiah has begun. This kingdom of the Messiah has been initiated. It's uh, begun. It hasn't been fully realized yet, right? We, we have things that are already fulfilled and things that are yet to be fulfilled, but it has, in fact, started And the reason we can be sure of this, Peter says, is because of uh, two main reasons. The first is you see the resurrection itself proved the beginning of his kingdom. You see that there in uh, in verses 33, uh, or verse 32 rather, and then also his exaltation as you read about in verse 34. But then, not only that, the outpouring of the Spirit itself was a proof of the beginning of the Messiah's kingdom. The amazing thing about that is that in the Old Testament, the Messiah was often talked about as being the man of the Spirit. Like this would be, this man would come anointed by the Spirit of God in, in this, incre- in this un- unbelievable measure. And that would be the, that would be the man that, that according to Jewish tradition, like the people would flock behind and follow into his kingdom. And the amazing thing about the reality that comes true is that the, the Son of God receives the promise of the Holy Spirit not to just hold it for himself as the Messiah, but to pour it out on his people. He doesn't just get the, the Spirit in order to uh, hold on to it, but instead to pour it out on his people. 
So that in order to have the Messiah is to have the Spirit of God, and to uh, have the Messiah is to have the Spirit of God have you, if you will. These things together mean that Jesus has been exalted and raised up, seated at the right hand of God. Here, Peter quotes uh, Psalm 110, which is interesting for two reasons. The first reason is that Psalm 110 is the most quoted um, Old Testament Bible passage. A little bit of Bible trivia for us. There is no verse, no passage in Scripture that is quoted in the New Testament more often than Psalm 110, which I would think for us means that it's a very important psalm to know. It's a very important thing, right? If it's more than anything else referenced. The other thing is that Peter um, uses only the first line of that psalm. But he's speaking to Jewish people who would have had that whole psalm memorized. And I really believe that as Peter um, spoke just the first line, he expected them to remember the entirety of the psalm. I don't think he, he meant to communicate to them that just this one verse is about Jesus, but instead that the entirety of this psalm was always about him. So I want us to read a, a bulk of uh, Psalm 110 here. It'll be on the screen for us, I believe. Psalm 110, it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Move down to verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, um, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Jesus is the all-ruling king that was foretold for centuries after centuries after centuries. He is the fulfillment of that psalm. He is the son of David and also still David's Lord. As it says, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, the Messiah. But he would rule in the midst of his enemies. So right, his, his kingdom wouldn't begin when all of his enemies were gone. Right? Instead, he is such a powerful king that he rules while he is removing his enemies. Sort of like King David working through um, the enemies of God geographically, right? He was ruling even though the enemies of God were still around, even though he was still dealing with that. So it is with the Messiah who is ruling as he still um, extends his kingdom reign, that he would shatter kings, and that his rule would begin in Zion, it would begin in Israel, and it would move to all nations, over the wide earth, it says. Just, just what came to pass, that the, the first Christians were there in Zion, the first Christians were there in Israel, and now his reign has, re has run through the whole earth. But the amazing thing about this psalm is that it speaks of Christ, speaks of the Messiah, not just as a king, but as a priest. So he isn't just a king that is... Um, depending on your persuasion, maybe what kind of movies you like. He isn't just a king that's awesome because he shatters kings and he crushes the enemies of God. He isn't just some king that can destroy, but he's also a priest who forgives. He's also a priest who sacrifices for his people. He's also a priest who offers forgiveness and absolution. And he would be a priest not just for a short time, but forever always interceding for his people, always gracious, always there 
between them and God mediating on their behalf. And he would offer a perfect sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice that would not only absorb the wrath of God, but also destroy the enemies of God. That's the amazing thing about the cross and the resurrection. It's not just the forgiveness of sin. It is also the destruction of all of God's enemies. It's the removal of them for their thrones. If you don't believe me on that, um, Colossians 2, uh, verses 13 to 15 is where we see that. Just listen to these verses. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's us, those of us who are sinners, which is everyone. We were made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your sin, my sin, by faith in Jesus Christ, set aside, nailed to the cross. Not only that, but he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He did this for all rulers, all authorities, visible and invisible. There is no throne that remains that is higher than Christ's throne. There's no one anywhere, again, visible or invisible, that can challenge his reign. So the testimony of Peter in light of the life, death, resurrection of Christ and Pentecost is that the kingdom has begun. And so I know that many of us maybe have heard different teaching on this in the past, or maybe we've thought different things about this in the past, um, but it's really important, I think, for us to understand that the kingdom of Christ is not waiting to start. The kingdom of Christ is not waiting to begin. His, his reign doesn't begin once all of his enemies are removed. Instead, he sat down at the right hand of God on high, which is the place of rulership. He sat down there, and while he's sitting there, he's not just napping. Instead, all of his enemies are being made his footstool. He's extending that reign. He's not losing his reign, by the way. There are times that we are convinced that God is losing his reign in this world. He is not losing his reign. He rules in the midst of his enemies. He shatters kings of the earth. He, he crushes his enemies. He puts them under his feet. He doesn't lose his reign. If you're unconvinced of that, Psalm 110, Acts chapter 2, even 1 Corinthians 15 talk about all these things. His reign is present. So I want us to live like people who believe that he is currently reigning. Right? Not every other thing that we see, not every other president that we see, not every other king that we see, not every other country that we see, Jesus is the one who is reigning. So there is a call in this. this. This reality that Christ is Lord over all things, there's a call in here that all people everywhere need to hear. This Jesus, for certain, without doubt, clearly proven, is the Lord and Christ. He is the King, and each of us, every single human, is responsible to bow down before Him. Not to make him Lord. Jesus does not need you to make him Lord. He doesn't need me to make him Lord. It's our responsibility to recognize that he is Lord. We don't, he doesn't need our help becoming Lord. Whether you are a president or a plumber, an accountant or a king, it is your job 
to recognize the lordship of Christ over you and everything that you have. Because the, the challenging thing about the gospel is that it really is two options. You can be his friend or you can be under his feet. You can be his friend or you can be under his feet. Even as we read earlier today, there's a name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. So church, your Jesus Christ is mighty in power and his throne does last forever. And in his sacrifice, he has begun building a house for the Lord. Remember that promise in 2 Samuel. He began building a house for the Lord. And by faith, he has brought you into it. Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. Write those down. You can look at them this week. He's building a spiritual house. It's a picture of God's kingdom. He's brought you into it by grace through faith. Even though all of us have sinned, listen, listen, every single one of us deserve the shattering. Every single one of us deserve the crushing. Every single one of us deserve the under his feet. Every single one of us deserve that. But through the grace of Christ on the cross, he took that crushing on the cross so that instead he could turn to you and say, will you instead receive forgiveness? Will you instead receive forgiveness? There is in Jesus Christ full reconciliation with God. So be reconciled with God today. If you are not reconciled with God, if you haven't had the record of debt canceled, set aside, nailed to the cross, trust in Him today. The absolute lordship of Christ is a, a reason that we as a church and a church plant want to be uh, something that I would call God-centered. We want to be God-centered. Our worship, we want it to be God-centered, not us-centered. Our, our preaching, our uh, kids' ministry, our activities outside of Sunday, our community groups, all that stuff, we want it to be God-centered because there's really only one name for us to glorify. There's really only one audience, if you will call it that. I don't really love that word, but there's really only one audience to please, to aim for. It's the one who has the highest throne. It's the Lord and not the world. So all these things are true about Christ being Lord. And that's a fun thing that we often say, but I think even as Christians, sometimes we do not really act like we believe that. We can say that all the time. We can get hyped up over social causes even. And, and don't, don't, why don't these people see that they need to follow God? Meanwhile, we are not following God. But because Christ is Lord, I want to help us hopefully live like he is truly Lord. So there's four things that I want us to think about. At least four things. There's probably more, but four is what we have today. That felt like a good number for some reason. The first is to trust in him. Trust in Christ with certainty. We don't have to come to this Lord and trust in him and kind of be half-hearted, be kind of hoping that he's strong enough, hoping that he's able. We can trust in him with certainty, which leads to number two, obedience. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, there's a calling on each of us to obey. He is sat down at the right hand until his enemies are made his footstool. The one who sits down on the throne is to be obeyed. And then verse 33, it talks about he has been exalted. Christ has been exalted. So the, the third thing we need to do is worship. You need to worship Christ like he is Lord of all. Worship Christ based on the fact that he is who he is. 
right? And even as we gather together to worship, we, we gather together to worship, and we do it based on who He is, not on how great we're feeling that day. Not on how great the music is going, not on how great that last reading was, not on how great our, our family was like arguing or not arguing on the way here, not on how great um, our day has been, how tired we are, how crazy the day has gone. We worship Him because He's Lord of all. He has a name that every single tongue ought to confess that He is God. He has a name that is so strong and so powerful that every single knee should be bowing before Him. We should worship like that is true all the time. And the last thing, verse 32, is witness. You and I must bear witness to this resurrected King. We must do it. You and I, church, you and I are His witnesses. The apostles are not here. We can't wait for Peter to start speaking for us. Can't wait for John or Paul to, to make a good argument. The ambassadors for God, the witness for God right now on this planet is every single one of you in this room. And he has given you his spirit to accomplish that. Right? We talked about this before. That receiving the spirit of God is not just a fun thing for us to have. Not just to like make it easier to pray or something like that. He gives us the spirit so that we can bear witness to him. That's our job. As we, even as we planted this church, the, the reason we planted a church was not just to gather in a different building or something like that. The reason we planted this church is because there's people here in Canal Winchester, in Groveport, in Lithopolis, there's people here who do not know about this Lord. There's people here in this area, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our relatives, and they will either one day be his friend or under his feet. They will either be seated next to him like Ephesians 2 talks about, seated next to him in grace or under his feet. And there's not another person who's required to go and speak to them, but you are. It doesn't matter if you've invited them to church before and they said no, you can invite them again. Invite them out to lunch this time, sweeten the deal for them. Invite them over for dinner afterwards. Because of Christ, show them his greatness. We must do this. We have to do this. And the good news is we can do this in faith that it will bear fruit because he is reigning. We can do this in faith that it will bear fruit because he is reigning. So we trust in him with certainty. We obey, we worship him, and we witness. Let's pray together. Father, as your people, we are grateful that we're yours. God, we deserve the crushing, we deserve your wrath, but you have given us your grace. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would celebrate that goodness, that amazing truth that you have set us free, that you have nailed our record of debt to the cross, and you left it there, and in the meantime, you dethroned every rule that was not your own. And now we get to live as part of your kingdom, as part of your house that you are building, as part of your redeemed children. Help us to be in awe of Christ. Help us to be amazed at him. Help us to be thankful that we are his. Help us to have a joy that truthfully just flows so naturally out of this good news.
Lord, we pray all these things in the name of the one who is the Lord over all. Amen.